Plugged In podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. And I'm Jordan McGillis. For much of this past week, a large portion of the United States has uh, plunged into a deep freeze, and that's raised demand for energy. The sharp increase in demand has uh, led to a natural test of the reliability of the energy grid, especially in the Midwest, where uh, a couple of the utilities have asked customers to curtail their use of natural gas. Jordan and I sat down with Jason Hayes, the Director of Environmental Policy at the Mackinac Center in Michigan, as well as Isaac Orr, a Policy Fellow at the Center of the American Experiment in Minnesota. We're speaking with Jason Hayes. Jason, I hear that it's been pretty cold back home there. Yeah, actually, it was, uh, I mean, we got to enjoy the polar vortex, too. Maybe not to the extent that uh, Minnesota and North Dakota and a few other states uh, did. But, yeah, we had our share of cold weather and uh, strong wind. Probably a good opportunity for uh, some people to get out on the lakes and play a little hockey, skate around. Yeah, I talked to a few people who said they were getting out to go ice fishing, so priorities that's what exactly. you gotta view this as an opportunity yeah exactly so uh just to start why don't you give us an overview of uh what exactly is going on with consumers and dte there from my understanding this morning the situation is sounds like uh everything's sort of back to normal but yeah that's correct everything uh according to consumers energy is back to normal and people are able to heat their homes uh the way they normally do so the reason for the concern was that um, obviously, the cold weather had stressed the, the region's system, both electrical and natural gas system. And um, what happened was, while the system was already stressed, there was a natural gas compression station in Macomb County in uh, Michigan that actually had a fire and an, and an explosion. And so that station, the Ray station, uh, for consumers energy handles about 64% of the natural gas that they put through their system. And so when they had to obviously shut that, that station down for safety reasons, uh, that, that put a crimp in their supply and they had to go out and start looking for supply from their other uh, storage areas. So they did have sufficient gas. It was just a matter of getting the gas into the system. And so as a safety measure, what Consumers Energy did was they said to all their customers, just cut cut back on use. Turn your house, if you run your house normally at 69 or 70 degrees in the winter, we'd like you to run it at 65 degrees. And what that did is it cut overall demand for natural gas and allowed them to kind of make it through that the tight window that they were dealing with. Do we have any information on the cause of that explosion and fire? I don't know exactly what caused that, so I won't uh, won't try to speculate or comment on that. Okay. And were there any casualties when that? Not occurred? that I know. No, that nobody was hurt, okay. which is a good thing. Uh, but again, it just just kind of put a crimp on the flow of natural gas. Yeah, I think a important aspect of this. Um, this situation is that uh, obviously it's wrapped up in the past decade or past two decades really of energy policy in Michigan has been kind of interesting. Uh, for a time there, Michigan was on a path towards uh, more consumer choice and uh, it was sort of moving towards the retail open access model. Um, yes. Talk about uh, 
just the the history of probably the past two decades there and um, why that's important to what's going on right now. Yes, it relates to choice um, the or free markets and electricity. Um, what happened was prior to 2000, Michigan had a fully vertically re regulated electricity system. So it was regulated utilities, government oversight of those utilities to set pricing and that sort of thing. In 2000, the state legislature passed uh, an electricity choice bill. And what that did is it opened up electricity. It was turned it into a choice system very similar to what uh, Texas has or similar to what you would expect in your cell phone, your cable, those sorts of things. If for some reason you don't like your uh, standard provider, the provider that uh, is is sending you electricity and uh, giving you a monthly bill, if you didn't like that, you could go out into the market and select a different provider. So that was the case in Michigan from 2000 to 2008. Uh, interestingly, when Michigan had that system, uh, by the end of 2008, our prices had dropped down below the national average and were, as, were below the prices of all of our neighboring states in the Great Lakes. Prior to that, they had been higher in both cases. So choice allowed us to, to enjoy lower prices and still have good, uh, strong service. So we didn't have, uh, you know, a, a sudden um, burst of out, uh, outages or anything like that. The service stayed relatively, uh, relatively good. And then in 2008, the legislature said, we're not going to keep with that system, the free market system. We're going to go back to a partially regulated or a hybrid system is what Michigan has now. So 90% of our electricity uh, is supplied by two vertically integrated regulated utilities or investor-owned utilities, and uh, they are guaranteed 90% of the retail market. The other 10% has been left in a choice market, so a more free market setup. And that, that system allows the people that 10% of the retail market to go and look for other providers. And typically that choice market is made up of um, industry and public schools. So there are no residential retail, like if you and I wanted to get into the, the choice market in Michigan, it's pretty much not gonna happen. Uh, there's a, a waiting list that has been very, very much the same waiting list uh, for the 10 years the, the state re-regulated the system. Basically, nobody has left the choice market, so nobody new can go into the choice market because it's fully subscribed. Right now, the, the organizations in Michigan that get to enjoy the choice market and lower prices and free markets and electricity are pretty much business and public schools. So that's the system that we work in, and um, that's where the two big utilities are still Detroit Edison or DTE and Consumers Energy in the Lower Peninsula. They are the ones that provide electricity for 90% of Michigan's retail electricity market. And they're the ones that are setting up the system to go largely to relieving off what, what I've called reliable baseload electricity. So we're closing down coal, 
consumers energy, one of the utilities is planning to effectively close their nuclear plant. And consumers energy has also said they want to close half of their natural gas. So the, the historical, reliable baseload sources of electricity, consumers energy is leaving those and going largely to wind and solar. So that's the situation, big picture, with, that Michigan is operating in. Obviously, the uh, the gas per, uh, compressor station in uh, in Macomb there that was part of this, as you said, it handles sixty four percent of nat- of uh, the natural gas that goes into a consumer's energy system. Um, do you talk a little bit about why uh, a choice model uh, might have prevented that to- from occurring? Yeah, and um, recognize also that um, we're we're dealing with uh, there's kind of two different things here. So, natural gas and what consumers energy asked people to do was natural gas used for home heating. So, 75 to 80 percent of the the homes in Michigan use natural gas to heat. When your furnace comes on, it's heating the air in your home with natural gas. And then the other situation that we're discussing, electricity choice, is kind of different, but they're connected because they're both systems. Like if you are using natural gas to heat your home and Consumers Energy or Detroit Edison are using natural gas to run a generation plant, they're both using the same supply. Like the the natural gas is coming into the state in pipelines. You need to understand they're two different situations, but they're connected because they're both relying on the same pipelines to get natural gas to the system. So Michigan has choice in natural gas markets. And in that sense, you're able to uh, to choose a different supplier if you want. And the strength in that system to get around to answering your question is the, the same in every other competition system. If you have an option to go to a different supplier, then you're gonna be able to make that choice. So recognizing that you're still using similar pipelines and that kind of thing. So there are some constraints because people obviously just can't go out and build a new pipeline and, and that kind of thing. You have to go through the permitting process to do that. Yeah, so, on, on that point, what is the state of pipeline infrastructure in Michigan? Uh, it's. It's good. We're trying to make sure it it gets even better. Uh, So Michigan does have pipelines running through it. We have unique geography being a peninsula that kind of pokes out into the three lakes. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to build pipelines directly through. But what we're trying to encourage is where there are pipelines, we should keep them and even expand on them and make sure that we have access to those sorts of things like the the energy that flows through those pipelines is essential to maintaining our style of life when temperatures get cold, when they get hot, or you know, just in general. Is the Upper Peninsula integrated into the same system, or uh, are they more aligned with Wisconsin on these things? In uh, electricity, they're definitely more aligned with Wisconsin, so they have different providers. There's there's different utilities, um, the Upper Peninsula Power Company or UPCO, and there's another one. Uh, I think Umer- Excel is involved up there too, aren't they? Exactly. So UMERC is uh, Northwest Power is Excel. They're an Excel sub- subsidiary. And um, then there's a few other municipals and, and uh, electric co-ops and that sort of thing. But the two 
larger ones that are operating in the upper peninsula are Opco and UMERC. So, um, but they are still, the upper peninsula and the lower peninsula are still connected. So you have electric lines that run through the Straits of Mackinac and you have one major pipeline that runs through the Straits of Mackinac. So that's Enbridge's line five. And so that's part of the system that, that connects the two peninsulas together. And uh, that's part of that system that we're saying should be maintained and preserved. And for line five specifically, uh, our legislature has just passed a bill in December in the lame duck session that would allow Enbridge to bury that pipeline, line five, under the Straits of Mackinac, build a, a, essentially drill a tunnel under the Straits of Mackinac to get that pipeline out of the water and put it into an enclosed tunnel. So that's something that we're saying is a good idea. We should do that. We need the energy, but what's a way that we can do it that's even more safe and more reliable? Building the tunnel is one way to do it. And it's, it's especially good <clears throat> for the people of Michigan because Enbridge has said they'd cover the cost for that. And then at the end of it, they'd turn it over. So the ownership of the tunnel would go back to the state. So it's it's a win-win a for the state there. Yeah, I know that the discussion around Line 5 there has been a big, big topic there in Michigan. And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, both DTE and consumers have been pretty successful in playing the political game um, for the past couple of years. I think maybe a couple of months ago, I saw you had an op-ed in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal kind of talking about this. Do you want to just outline sort of the way that those companies have been operating as uh, utilities in the state there? Yeah, absolutely. Part of the, the process that Michigan is moving toward is it's called an IRP process, an integrated resource plan, uh, where basically the utilities put out their plans for what they want to do as far as generation, transmission, distribution, that sort of thing, out for the, like the next 20 years. And so just prior to um, submitting their IRP, Consumers Energy submit their, submitted their IRP last year. But just before they did that, uh, Consumers Energy and Detroit Edison, uh, DTE, had a meeting with Tom Steyer, who's uh, a California um, activist, we'll say. He uh, made his money in coal and fossil fuels and now has decided that the rest of the world should not be able to be similarly successful. And so what he did was he uh, pumped $2 million plus into Michigan to um, encourage a ballot initiative, which would have forced, if successful, it would have forced the state to go uh, to 30% renewable energy by the year 2030. So they called it the 30 by 30 initiative. And so the two utilities essentially said to Tom Steyer, you know, they called him and said, uh, we're already planning to do something similar. They came out and they publicized a big deal, uh, an agreement that they, they effectively signed with Tom Steyer, these two utilities, and said, we're, we are not going to do the 30 by 30 ballot initiative. What we're going to do is we're going to do a 50% clean energy standard um, by 2040. And so that 50% is 25% renewables and 25% clean energy programs, things like demand response and um, efficiency programs. And uh, demand response for people who are not familiar with the term 
is exactly what we just went through in Michigan. So if you didn't didn't know what demand response was and you got the emergency notice on your, your smartphone from the, the state government that said, please turn down your heaters to 65 degrees to help reduce overall energy demand, you just lived through demand response. And that's why um, I said in my uh, article, my blog post that I posted yesterday to Mackinac's website, get used to it because the plan that uh, that they agreed to with Tom Steyer, the, the two utilities, DT and consumers agreed to, was that 25% renewable energy and 25% demand response and efficiency programs. Together, they add up to 50%. And so what's happening is Consumers Energy, through their IRP, has said they're going to close down their coal, close down their nuclear, close down half their natural gas, and build wind and solar to power the state of Michigan. They're also planning to build some storage, some battery storage, and that sort of thing. But what happens when you get a system that's run on ephemeral or um, less reliable sources of energy like renewables is you don't know for sure that the wind is going to blow. You, the sun goes down every day con consistently, so you only have sun for a certain period of time in the day. And if it's occluded by clouds or that sort of thing, you have less efficient generation. So we're setting ourselves up in Michigan to deal with demand response situations on a regular basis. That's actually part of consumers' energies. Uh, overall integrated resource plan or IRP document is demand response is going to provide a large portion of the electricity overall system that that we use. So that's I mean it's <laughs> I apologize it's a long-winded way of getting to this, but it's it's definitely it's a complex multi-layered system with a lot going on. Uh, so the the short simple version of it is, like I said in my blog post, get used to it, because this is something that's coming down the road for all of Michigan's residents. Yeah, we'll make sure to uh, link to the blog post that you put up last night there at uh, Mackinac's website, which is org, I believe, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Great, Jason. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And uh, we'd love to have you on the show uh, to maybe do a little bit longer segment where we dive into uh, all of these issues that are you guys are tackling there in Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to join whenever you guys are free. Good stuff, Jason. Thanks a lot. Yep. Thank you. All right. Isaac Orr now joins us. Isaac is a policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment in Minnesota. Isaac, we're sitting here in Washington, D.C., watching the snow fall. It's about 20 degrees. You'd probably be excited to hear that news right about now. Oh, my God. It's supposed to get to 20 today, and everyone in Minnesota is ecstatic. So what have you guys been dealing with uh, over the past week? Oh, boy. So the high on Wednesday was negative 14. The low was like negative 29, and that's in the Twin Cities. If you get up to International Falls, I think I read it was something like negative 50. That's astonishing. I have uh, relatives in a small town in northern Minnesota called Black Duck. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't. It's near Bemidji. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. Bemidji. <laughs> exactly. So I've, I've been keeping tabs on what they've been facing. I think they got down to negative 38, uh, not including the wind chill a couple of nights ago, which is it's just unfathomable for me. I, I don't know what that feels like. Um, and I never want to know. And I hope that people don't have to feel that because they have warmth and comfort inside their homes. Do they have that right now? 
are they in uh, jeopardy of losing that right now? So it's interesting. XL Energy is the largest electricity producer in uh, the state of Minnesota, but they also have a very large natural gas service. And they had to ask 460,000 customers to turn their thermostats down in order to conserve gas because it was so cold. A couple things I'm wondering about are what people use in, in Minnesota to heat their homes. Is there a large uh, percentage of natural gas for home heating? Is there heating oil? Um, what What's primarily going on and how is that affecting electricity? Minnesota uses natural gas to heat approximately 66% of their homes. Uh, electricity is next, which is substantially lower. Um, I don't remember what the exact uh, numbers are for propane and fuel oil, but there's still a significant amount of that. And then as you get up north, people still use wood in some respects. So um, it's it's a diverse mix, but it's primarily natural gas. Yeah, so we just got done talking to Jason Hayes uh, from the Mackinac Center in Michigan, and they, they are running into a similar uh, situation there. But in Michigan, one of their uh, one of their natural gas compressors, there was a fire, and that was actually what caused uh, the situation. Has there been anything like that in Minnesota, or is this um, a separate issue? There was no fire. There was no real reason for this to happen. I mean, we're supposed to be protected from shortages and rationing and stuff like that. Uh, Excel said that there was just too much strain on their system from people using too much gas. And it's interesting that Centerpoint Energy, which is the largest provider of natural gas services in Minnesota, did not report any strain or low pressures on their, their pipeline systems. Can you explain for our listeners why simple principles of supply and demand aren't actualized here? Why does there need to be an announcement and a request to use less? Why why don't the prices simply reflect that there's a bit of a shortage? Well, I think the, the main reason for that is the, the supply was limited. So they didn't have enough gas to push all the way through their pipeline system. So they decided, well, we have to shut off 150 customers in order to maintain reliable service for everyone else. So um, the, the main reason really boils down to the fact that this is a public utility and that therefore people don't actually pay for the, the prices in real time, which would normally right, get people right. to turn down the, the thermostat. Can you talk about the, the history of the renewable energy standard in Minnesota? Yeah, absolutely. So back in 2007, then Governor Tim Pawlenty, who is a Republican, uh, enacted a 25% renewable energy standard. And this excluded large hydro, which is, I think, a really bad idea. We have Manitoba Hydro right up north. They could be providing us with more electricity than we know what to do with in terms of zero CO2 emissions. But we had a special carve out for wind, and then they made another special carve out for solar. So we have about 18% of our electricity generation right now comes from wind power. And how is the, the wind being utilized? What, uh, what are we seeing there in terms of the actual output uh, relative to the capacity of the, the wind facilities? Oh boy, I'm glad you asked because I've been harping on this all week. So the, the capacity for wind is actually really high, but the problem is when you look at this, there's this great app. I would encourage everyone who listens to this uh, podcast to get this app. It's called Electricity Map. And it will show you in real time what's happening on the energy grid. So it'll show you what's happening in New York, the Mid-Continent Interconnection System, which is our independent systems operator. Sorry, I always get MISO's acronym or real name mixed up. But it'll show you what's happening in the middle of the country. And 
During this cold snap, I woke up and I saw that the temperature was negative 24, but wind was only producing 4% of the electricity on MISO. And worse than that, it was only utilizing 24% of installed capacity. And that figure actually fell down to about 17 during the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. That's that's discouraging, considering what we're being told regarding the promise of wind going forward. But it still faces this purely physical challenge of uh, not being able to store that energy in, in any efficient way. Well, it's it's a really irresponsible policy, really, when you think about the fact that we almost ran out of natural gas on Wednesday. It's a very real danger. And people talk about, oh, well, you know, well, we're averting all these CO2 emissions. And you know what? We can use – there was an, a reporter on NPR yesterday, Minnesota Public Radio, that said they almost ran out of natural gas in Becker, Minnesota, which is ironically the home of two of the largest coal-fired power plants in the state that they're going to be shutting down. But maybe we don't need more natural gas infrastructure there because the wind is Minnesota has such great wind resources and we can use that to heat our homes through electric heating. And I was like, oh, my goodness, do you know that wind is 4 percent utilizing 19 percent of installed capacity right now? Mm -hmm. If people had to rely on electric heating and wind power last Wednesday, it would have been a disaster. I think it's interesting that Excel was the uh, the utility that was involved here because if I remember correctly, they were either the first or one of the first utilities to commit to complete uh, transition to renewables by, forget the target year, I think it might have been 2050 or something. Is, is that correct? Yeah, ain't that ironic? Um, Excel comes out and pats itself on the back saying, hey, we're going to be 100% carbon-free by 2050. Uh, they've spent about $15 billion on wind turbines and infrastructure uh, transmission lines in the state of Minnesota, and then this happens. Our electricity prices have risen 27% faster than the national average since we enacted the renewable energy standard. And you know what? If I think it's just so irresponsible that we've squandered all that money on an energy source that we can't use when it gets cold, and then we ask people to ration their gas. This is... This is beyond embarrassing and irresponsible. Episodes like this are excellent, though, for, for putting into stark relief the importance of reliable, consistent electricity and, and heating sources. This isn't something to mess around with. Um, we're talking about actual physical risks that people are facing um, with these shortfalls. Yeah, there's a real danger to these policies. And right now in St. Paul, they're considering a 50% renewable energy standard. But what most people don't understand about renewable energy standards is that they do not replace coal-fired power plants with wind and solar. They replace coal-fired power plants with wind, solar, and natural gas because it can ramp up fast enough to meet that demand. So if we had been reliant on 50% of our energy from wind and solar last Wednesday, and the wind was operating at like a 20% capacity factor, there wouldn't have been enough wind on the system to make enough electricity to where it would make sense to use it. So we would have 96% of our electricity coming from natural gas, and that would be competing with residential customers. We can't build a new pipeline for oil in Minnesota because the environmental groups are suing over it. And you don't think that they're going to do the same thing for natural gas pipelines? Exactly. Like we, we have a crucial shortage 
of not only natural gas infrastructure, oil infrastructure, but common sense energy policy in our state. And I'm glad that this incident helps illustrate that. And there's another piece of this puzzle I need you to put in place for us, and that's nuclear. Where is nuclear in Minnesota? Nuclear is illegal. Well, new ones are. Uh, Minnesota's had a ban on new nuclear power plants since 1994. Uh, thankfully, we have two existing nuclear plants. We've got Monticello and Prairie Island, and they are two of the largest power plants in the state. Uh, in fact, let me look this up. In terms of um, capacity well, generation, they were the second and third largest, second and fourth largest, third and fourth largest producers of electricity in the state. So those are critically important, but the environmental groups, believe it or not, uh, they want to shut these down so they can incorporate more wind and solar onto the grid. If you're an energy consumer there in Minnesota, what's the, uh, what's the big takeaway here? What's the lesson that um, everybody needs to learn? We need to understand that wind and solar are variable sources of energy that you can't depend on. I mean, some people argue, well, you don't drive your car very often. What's your capacity factor on your car? Or even your bed, right? It's only You're only in your bed 33% of the time. What's the big deal? It's like, well, you get to choose when those things are used. When we are at the mercy of a chaotic and natural system <laughs> that just by its intrinsic nature, we joke about how variable it is. That's a mistake. We're putting too many eggs in a basket that we cannot count on when it when it matters most. And I think if we're not building our system to be able to accommodate negative 24 in Minnesota, then we are doing a real disservice, not even a disservice. We're putting people's lives at risk, and that is incredibly irresponsible. Isaac, uh, thank you for taking the time today to talk to us. I think you're the uh, the first repeat guest on the podcast, actually, so... Yeah, uh, yet another distinction for you. Congratulations on that. Perfect. Appreciate that. <laughs>